Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. As government-to-government discussions are often not occurring or are breaking down further, this dialogue is critically important to improve the health of both Americans and Chinese. Where we can cooperate, we can improve the lives of ordinary citizens of both countries. So tonight, let me very briefly introduce each of the speakers. If I went over their entire bios, our entire 90 minutes would be used up in talking about the accomplishments of these five panelists. You know, George Gao, who is off giving a, momentarily, he's off giving comments at the opening ceremony of another event. He's been director of the China Center for Disease Control and Prevention since 2017. He, of course, led the fight against COVID-19, as he also did against Ebola. Just to show how international he is, for those of you who don't know him, he got his PhD in biochemistry at Oxford and worked at Harvard Medical School earlier, earlier in his career. Uh, we have, it's written here, Margaret Hamburg, but I call her Peggy, is the former commissioner of the US Food and Drug Administration, where she, she was for six years and stepped down in 2015. She currently is foreign secretary of the National Academy of Medicine. Gordon Leo is the Boyo Professor of Economics and the Ministry of Education, Yangtze River Scholar Professor of Economics at the National School of Development at Peking University. He's also Vice Dean of the PKU Faculty of Economics. Mark McClellan is, the for, is a, also a former commissioner of the US FDA and current director and Robert Margolis Professor of Business, Medicine and Health Policy at the Margolis Center for Health Policy at Duke University. Uh, Julia Spencer is currently the Associate Vice President of Global Vaccines, Public Policy, Partnerships and Government Affairs at Merck. Prior to that, she spent 15 years in senior positions at the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, what we're gonna do tonight is we'll start off with Mark, who will kind of frame the big picture um, and talk about kind of what the United States has been doing. If George is back, we'll then go to George, who will talk about how China responded, how China CDC responded to COVID. If he's not back, we'll then directly go to Julia, um, who's gonna talk about the work on developing vaccines, where we are, and the progress that is being made. Gordon will then talk about the structure of healthcare delivery in China, how it has helped, or in some cases, hindered the response to the virus. And then Peggy can address the reasons why the United States is still struggling in our response to COVID-19, where today we had another I believe 1,400 deaths in the United States as a result of COVID-19 and about 68,000 new cases. So we are not in a good place in the United States. Um, you know, I wanna thank Gordon 
and uh, Leo, uh, Minister Liu Chen and Mark, because they were really the, the founders of this track to healthcare dialogue. It was through their kind of enormous efforts that they pulled together these experts on both sides of the, uh, of the Pacific. And as I said at the beginning, at a time when government to government discussions are breaking down and are not occurring, this is critically important. And last but not least, a director of the committee who was former CEO of Sanofi, Olivier Brandoncourt, who pushed me over a decade to start this dialogue, which finally Mark then took ownership of. So let me, uh, let me stop there and uh, turn it over to Mark. Steve, thank you very much. I'd also like to thank all of our participants joining us tonight in the United States and early in the morning in China. Uh, this is a difficult time for U.S.-China relations for some understandable reasons, for perhaps for some uh, less so, but this is also the midst of an unprecedented global public health emergency and pandemic and dialogue between our two countries is critical. So a special thanks to my colleague, uh, Gordon Liu, uh, who has been a longtime friend and collaborator in health policy and economics, and also to George Gao, who I know is very busy uh, with the Chinese public health response. And uh, I guess it's good that he was, he, he looks good uh, tonight, uh, recently um, injected with the experimental vaccine and seems to be having no major side effects uh, so far. Um, very happy to be part of this dialogue uh, tonight. Um, in terms of framing what we will cover, we wanted to talk about three big topics that have been a subject of discussion and work in our dialogue, uh, all related to the pandemic and response right now. Uh, first is the containment of COVID-19 in each of our countries, which as Steve said and is obvious to the world, is very different. Uh, we've had close to uh, 70,000 cases per day. Uh, we are at a plateau in what is really the second phase of still the first wave of the pandemic in the United States. We had a first phase in New York and New Jersey, some of our Eastern states. Now many of our Southern states affected. Those cases are plateauing, but we're seeing more spread to other parts of the United States as well. So no signs that our uh, caseloads are going to be declining uh, very soon. Uh, the uh, reasons behind this, I think uh, Dr. Hamburg will discuss. Uh, among others, they include the challenges in implementing an effective uh, lockdown uh, in the United States. Uh, we uh, didn't do it for as long or as intensively as many countries did when the virus initially spread to the U.S. and our challenges in implementing effective testing and contact tracing at large scale and being able to track individuals in ways that just don't match uh, what's uh, been done in, in China and other Asian countries for, for a number of reasons. On the better news side, uh, we are seeing more changes in behavior in the United States with more people wearing masks and taking steps to distancing, making the voluntary choices to, to do that and more uh, ideas for how we can improve our national testing strategy uh, using not only laboratory tests to detect cases and people who are infected, but with a virus as widespread as it is in the United States, the need for screening tests at large scale using point of care and new technologies for uh, complementing the laboratory tests is very important and, and hopefully will 
get underway at a larger scale in the United States soon. We also are going to talk about the progress on therapeutics in addressing the COVID-19 public health uh, emergency and, and pandemic. Uh, uh, Julia Spencer will be talking about the progress on vaccines. Uh, there is a lot of activity ongoing in both countries around therapeutics as well. Uh, in the US, uh, clinical trials underway for monoclonal neutralizing antibodies for a range of treatments that can help uh, moderate the severity of COVID-19 in uh, intensely ill patients uh, and other therapeutics uh, as well. We've seen a change in the way that biomedical innovation is occurring with what had been traditionally a, a long, linear, and uncertain process uh, into a more parallel process with clear guidance about what's needed to demonstrate safety and effectiveness with planning ahead for large-scale clinical studies like vaccine studies now on many different platform candidates and with advanced manufacturing of large-scale supplies, hundreds of millions of doses before we know whether the vaccines work or not. Still ahead are determining whether those uh, clinical trials show safety and effectiveness and then the challenges of large-scale distribution and use, acceptance uh, of the vaccines and, the, and other treatments in the U.S. population. We'll talk about that. We'll also talk about healthcare. Uh, I want to highlight how the U.S. healthcare system has been challenged by the pandemic. We've seen uh, extraordinary response in our hospitals to the large number of severe cases with surges taking place to increase our ventilator supply, our supply of protective equipment, uh, our ability to treat patients. So mortality rates, death rates from COVID-19 are falling among hospitalized patients. But we've had more challenges in reforming our healthcare system to make it work well in a pandemic setting. We've seen larger scale adoption of telemedicine and care from home and new models of care delivery that emphasize uh, helping people in the community so they can avoid having to go to the hospital. So we're seeing approaches like chemotherapy at home or management of kidney failure from using home dialysis. This has taken new ways of paying in the United States and one of the opportunities in this very difficult pandemic challenge is implementing new ways of paying for healthcare that can make these innovative approaches to care stay around to get to more digital, personalized, prevention-oriented care, care that is more convenient and at home. So we're seeing some innovations in that area as well. And also uh, similar changes, I think, taking place in China. So that'd be another very important topic to discuss as our healthcare systems evolve to do a better job of providing personalized prevention-oriented care and avoiding some of the complications with the pandemic. I'm very much looking forward to further discussion of these and other topics. Uh, thanks again, Steve, for, for helping to bring us together. Thanks for leading this, this track too over these years. Let's talk vaccines. Great. Um, so Steve, thank you so much. And thanks to Gordon and George and Mark and to the US-China National Committee for the opportunity to join you today. As we all know, this kind of open dialogue is essential and is the foundation upon which meaningful collaboration occurs. You heard from Mark some pretty stark news coming out of the US about what's happening um, on the ground with the pandemic 
but I'm here to share some, I think, more optimistic news uh, in, in the work that's going on in developing vaccines at an unprecedented pace like we've never seen before. And it's because never in our lifetimes has a global health threat made the need for the rapid cooperation, collaboration, and partnership that we are engaged in more apparent. As we all know, this is the scientific and global health challenge of our generation, and it demands collaboration from across the scientific community and more broadly. I think we, every day we find it so remarkable in the vaccines industry that there are so many viable pathways to vaccines just six months after the SARS-CoV-2 virus was identified. There are more than 150 vaccine candidates at some point in the development process with 25, and that may actually be more now, um, in clinical trials. And this breadth of innovation is essential because only about 6% of vaccine candidates re reach licensure. It's also critical because multiple vaccines will likely be needed to address this pandemic due to the differences in their product profiles and the differential utility that they may have within population groups and across geographies. This innovation that is underway is a testament to the collective leadership and the investment of governments, industry, and other stakeholders working together to create a vaccine ecosystem that facilitates, rewards, and values innovation meet these most pressing public health needs. I'd like to just take a moment to recognize and to applaud the Chinese government's leadership and commitment to strengthening its own vaccine ecosystem through policies such as its vaccine administration law and other efforts. Our experience working with the Chinese authorities in 2018 to license and distribute our HPV vaccine, Gardasil, which protects against cervical cancer and other related cancers and diseases is a great example of how a strong vaccine ecosystem can deliver life-saving prevention to the Chinese people at a speed without trading off important safeguards. We look forward to continuing to work with China and to bolster its vaccine ecosystem, including by bringing new technologies such as blockchain to promote a secure and efficient supply chain. And in this time of unprecedented action, it feels like any innovation that, uh, that we can identify, we need to find ways to be able to bring it into the ecosystem. And all of that is the good news. But as we all know as well, a lot more needs to be done. And the kind of unity and purpose that we've been talking about in these dialogues and the collective action that we've been pursuing are needed. International cooperation and early engagement between regulatory authorities, industry, and other stakeholders is going to be paramount in continuing to accelerate not only the development, but the deployment of COVID-19 vaccines. And that includes regulatory cooperation and convergence across borders, including between the US and China, including the development of innovative regulatory reliance approaches. It will also require defining and streamlining regulatory pathways for vaccines, for pandemic response, and for adapting post-licensure requirements to the need for speed that we have in this pandemic 
for manufacturing and distribution. Things like harmonizing labeling and packaging requirements and ensuring that attention is paid now to bolstering pharmacovigilance practices that ensure product safety and that vaccines that are being developed, registered, and launched at a rapid and mass scale uh, without much long-term data are still safe and effective. And lastly, I want to underscore that having a vaccine is only part of the solution. Trust in vaccines and the trust in the systems deliver them is paramount. There's a real need to strengthen the immunization systems around the world, including in both of our countries, to be ready and able to deploy millions, if not billions of doses, perhaps of multiple COVID-19 vaccines rapidly through mass vaccination efforts. This includes ensuring the capacity and capability to effectively manage, administer, and monitor vaccination efforts with multiple vaccines in multiple settings, perhaps simultaneously, and for establishing or significantly expanding information systems and communications capabilities. At Merck, we're doing our part to ensure the safety of our two vaccine candidates through the development process. This commitment to safety and quality will continue in the production phase, and we will also work with partners to support the sharing of accurate and complete information and facts. However, this is not a problem that our industry can tackle alone. Multilateral and bilateral cooperation like the type of cooperation between the US and China that's possible through this dialogue, needs to focus on communicating information on vaccine development and manufacturing requirements and use in a way to assure the public that rigorous standards will continue to be met and that technical bodies will make science-based recommendations for vaccination and ethical prioritization decisions. Regulators and other government and scientific leaders, including industry, have a critical role in promoting confidence in the vaccines that will be used to combat this pandemic. And as I conclude my remarks, I want to emphasize the incredible health, economic, and social value of vaccination. As a result of more than a century of scientific innovation and global health cooperation in many parts of the world, a number of infectious diseases have all but disappeared off of our radar screen, save for the occasional outbreak as a result of low vaccination coverage rates. And these public health achievements make it really easy to forget the value of vaccines to society on a day-to-day -day basis. However, this pandemic is a stark reminder of the critical role that vaccines play in enabling all of us, no matter what country we live in, to work together, for our children to play and learn together, and for our economies to thrive. And so as the world strives to act in solidarity to support the unprecedented development, manufacturing, and delivery of COVID vaccines, we have a unique opportunity to work together more closely to transform the shape of the vaccine ecosystem in our countries in a way that is lasting and sustainable. I'm so proud of us at Merck and how we are leveraging our longstanding infectious disease and vaccines expertise, our resources, 
and our experiences battling pandemics like um, and, and, and outbreaks like Ebola make a meaningful difference in the fight against COVID-19. And I'm also proud of our longstanding partnerships with the US government and the government of China to bring innovative and life-saving medicines and vaccines to the people there. We look forward to continued dialogue and collaboration to protect against future emerging infectious diseases. Hey. Thank you, Steve. Great, thanks. Uh, Thank you, Steve. Um, hello, uh, everyone, uh, friends and colleagues in the US. Good evening to you. And uh, Chinese friends, good morning. I'm so pleased to uh, be here to join this um, public event uh, that has ever been held by US-China Health Track 2 Dialogue. And especially, it, it uh, takes place during this special time when China and US are experiencing very difficult time. So I value it very much as everyone else does. Uh, what I want to talk about um, today is to try to provide some explanations and lessons that we can draw uh, as to why and how was the COVID-19 virus um, taken well under control in China for the first wave. I'd like to offer um, four observations. Number one is uh, on the role of government as you all are well aware, under the command of strong central government, a series of executive orders were issued for measures such as lockdown, testing, tracing, and isolation. And perhaps more importantly, these measures are closely followed by local governments to implement a nearly universal coverage of the state interventions through the highly regulated nationwide community networks on both supply side for business and demand side for households. That's number one. My second observation for that question is on the role of culture. Conditional on government actions, much research also finds a great deal of variations in health outcomes in terms of confirmed cases or fatalities across countries. Why? Well, this led us to hypothesize that non-government conditions may matter as well to the health outcomes, one of which is culture. Here I particularly refer to how people with different cultures may behave differently in self-action such as social distancing and staying at home when considering the trade-offs between health and wealth or quantity of life and the quality of life. For example, both China and, the U uh, and India took very stringent state orders, but people's behaviors in risk aversion differ quite much between these two countries, contributing a very important determinant of health outcome. China and Japan set another interesting example for comparison. 
where China, as you all know, is very much stronger in government orders, as I said earlier, well, Japan can't and cause greatly more on the role of good citizen self-compliance, also result in outstanding health and economic outcomes so far. My third observation is on the role of public hospitals. Taking advantages of public hospitals in China, the government mobilized more than 42,000 medical professionals nationwide to join the front lines of Wuhan, Hubei in fighting against the virus. And along with these troops, a full range of medical and technological supplies were also pulled heavily from the public health systems to support Wuhan and other infected cities in Hubei. As a result, Almost all confirmed cases were taken to state hospitals for treatment, regardless of conditions. Having said all this, uh, when we look back, I think we, we can see um, that uh, we, we, we could draw a number of lessons that we could have done better if um, we were back in uh, uh, early this year. So that's my observation four uh, as a cautionary note for some lessons that we, that, that would let us to do better otherwise. First, while most COVID-19 patients obtained good quality treatment from hospitals in Wuhan, a question remained for inquiry is whether or not it was economically cost-effective to put all patients in hospital settings, given the epidemiological fact that over 80% of the confirmed cases were in modest conditions, which can and may be better treated in non-hospital facilities, such as community healthcare centers, or primary care offices, or even home care settings with appropriate medical support. Put differently, what if COVID-19 were back for multiple times and were at much larger scale in many regions? Would it be sustainable to treat all patients in hospitals while idling many of the non-hospital facilities and resources. Second, while overwhelmingly allocating medical and financial resources nationwide to focus on treating the immediately visible COVID-19 patients, many patients with other diseases, especially major chronic conditions, were put on hold without needed treatment due to required shutdown or limited access to care. But because of the virus-focused efforts at the moment, however, little is known on the trade-offs between the visible lost lives immediately from COVID-19 
and invisible lost lives from other deadly leading killers sooner or later. As a reference, based on the half year data, the world death tolls were about 3,500 daily for COVID-19 so far. Well, cardiovascular disease alone killed over 48,000 people per day globally. Those are my comments for our viewers um, to think about. Uh, so um, still back to you, I'll, I'll, I'll share some more things uh, later. During the discussion, a uh, lot of food for thought there. Uh, George, you got your slides ready. Can you see my slide? <clears throat> yes. Okay, so uh, give me five minutes. I will brief talking something first <clears throat> about the China-US relationship. Where are we now? Let me timer, open my timer. So we are friend or enemy. You know, that's something very big, but we have to, though we are working on, um, for me, I'm working on public health. When you are seeing public, we hear this, who are public? Public means everybody living on the earth. On the same, we are living on the same earth. Though, you know, you call the US, we call China, but we are in the same, we are all the homo sapiens, the same species. Don't, don't forget about this. So the virus will, the virus will make us a friend because we have to work together. And also, you know, we really want to add up uh, with the interdependency or globalization. I, I don't think we have, we have other choice. We got to work together. And science and politics, um, you know, we have to see something convergency. You've got to try to find something there. This is a, what I mean, commonality. We have some commonality there. And also, you know, the whole collaboration, whole relationship depends on the individuals and, uh, and also the whole population. So this is something we have to think about it. So I mentioned uh, by uh, the last word I want to say. So who owns the world? Earth. Everybody, including the U.S. citizens and China citizens. So this is what I want to say. We have to work together. Now to the to my uh, size part. Uh, let's remind you about what we have done in China to um, get the um, uh, COVID-19 control. I mentioned last time, but I want to remind you again. So we made. Um, uh, great effort, and uh, I, I don't, I don't want to say that the U.S. can copy Chinese way. No one can copy what we have done the China way. But I want to show you the fact. This is what we have done. So this is a we see the active case finding with case management. This is the key. Community level control is the key. So this is already published in the Lancet called CID. So we described what we have done in China in details. You know, four lines four levels and four earlys. When you see the four lines here, Wuhan, Hubei, and Hubei surrounding areas and China. So from the very beginning, we categorize the, you know, in terms of the prevention control by using different uh, strategies. So we named you four lines. And also we, what we have done also at the four levels, we measured also that, you know, when you see the four levels, somewhere are new cases, sporadic cases, cluster of cases, and community transmission. So this is the key, this is the major part. And the early, of course, you know, or mentioned early, early detection, early report, early report, early treatment, and early isolation quarantine. This is exactly what we have done in China. 
And of course, we use the so-called NPI, non-pharmacological intervention. So I mentioned this last time, remind you, you know, what we have done. So these figures I want to tell you, if in China, if we didn't do anything, this is the projection, and we would have an outbreak, at least something like that. And um, of course, because the intervention, NPI intervention in China, we only got some cases like this. And now we are somewhere here. So we always have this sporadic outbreak. Now we have, you know, North, Northeast China, uh, then Beijing, now in Xinjiang Autonomous Region, and also in Dali, you know, uh, Liaoning Province. So we always have this. We try to do a welcome. George, if, if in your graph, the no intervention, I, I, how many cases would that have been? Um, Beijing 300 and uh, Xinjiang no, with, with, with no, and, I assume uh, the, pur the purple line is no intervention, right? No, this is a no intervention if, you know, in China. Yeah, so what would have. be, what I would mean, the number would the of cases have been? Oh, if, well, we, we claimed um, you could have 200,000 more. Now yeah. we have 8,000, of course, you know, in addition to the asymptomatic, that means, uh, um, antibody positive. So we are still working on that, the exact number. But this 80, this could be 26,000. And of course, you know, this is a, what I mentioned this earlier, I don't want to go further. What we learned from Beijing's response. So we got the virus, you know, suppressed in Beijing. You know, from the very beginning, the CPA is really like the Wuhan. But, you know, what we have that restriction instead of lockdown, this time we did the lockdown in Beijing. And then quickly expand your PCR testing a secure economic resuming, you know, everything looks uh, the same uh, in Beijing when we have this one. And if you see the whole society response, we call everybody, you know, to, to try to trace anything you, know, you might think is, 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 is a problem. Now, we can we um, copy the same thing, like what we did in Beijing's response. In Xinjiang, autonomous region, in Dali, uh, linked cases, so this is exactly what we are doing at the moment. I think we are confident. I, we have to wait, give you the answer within the next one or two weeks. So far, so good. We are confident, but you know, it's an infectious disease. It's a, a very crazy virus. We, let's wait and see. Now the last slide, what's the challenge we have? Um, I think uh, Julia and also Mark, the uh, mentioned about the vaccine. So vaccine and drug R&D is very important. We got to share these public products. This is a public product. We need to find a way how we can share the vaccine, especially in some area like, uh, you know, uh, low, and, uh, low and medium income countries. So there they need the vaccine, but you know, they can't afford, but we need to find a fund. Maybe Steve, you can organize a foundation to, in, to stimulate the companies to produce the vaccine as many as possible. And also people have to change our behavior. And then uh, we have to prevent euphemic. In addition to the pandemic, we have to deal with the euphemic and do a good issue. Like I heard Tony Fauci was attacked. I was attacked from the very beginning. When we had this one, I was attacked in China. You know, people think, you know, you are the DG of China CDC. You are one, you can't get the virus whole. But you know, when you have a crazy virus like that one, it's very difficult. Now, international cooperation, including China and the US. 
if we do work together, I think the virus itself will work together. So we do work together, the virus work together. And also foresee the future, we might have a COVID after 19, 20, 23, 23. So this is why we have to work together. And we have to keep the dialogue and we have to keep uh, the openness, transparency, cooperation, and you know, all these good words, you know, you give the word there. I think I have to stop here uh, because uh, it's already seven minutes for me. Thank you. George, can I just ask, but before turning it over to Peggy, the, the newspapers reported you put yourself in the in the trial, in, 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 a, in a vaccine trial. Can you briefly talk about why you did that? Mark said you look very well. I agree with Mark, you look very well. So the side effects don't seem, don't seem bad, but I did notice you were wearing a mask when you first came on. So yeah. tell okay, us what see, you're doing uh, with that. Yeah, Mark, Mark's comment is right. I'm, I'm all right. Though I was attacked from the very beginning because like you know, 2014 and I think uh, uh, Bob Redfield, people think, you know, you are the public, you are the leader for the disease control and prevention. You are you should be the one who get the virus done. So now, for your question. And uh, so this is why I'm addressing a lot about the epidemic. We have to work very hard for risk communication and the epidemic. The, Ejection of the vaccine for me is related to the epidemic. You know, because there's a lot of scientific base to claiming, I say the scientific base quote, people claiming the antibodies against COVID-19, you the survivors are very, very the titer is very, very low. They might not be able to protect you. So this is why if you vaccinate, you are vaccinated, it may be a waste of your effort. That's the first rumor awards we don't know of course this could be true but you know this is a new virus we, we don't know that and the second you know people might think the vaccine you know everywhere in the world because andrew whitfield uh scandal people have something you know they have the hesitation to to be vaccinated so this is a, and also um for example in china everywhere can we really produce the vaccine ourselves within such a short period? So this is why I myself put myself as a mouse. mouse. I'm a mouse as an animal model to see if it works because I have this confidence. Mark said, Mark's uh, comments right. You know, look, I'm, I'm healthy, I'm all right. So I am ejected, but uh, I'm not in a position to tell you which one because otherwise people say, well, you are doing some advertisement for any kind of viral uh, vaccine or any kind of uh, companies. What I want to see in China at the moment, we have four vaccines, four kinds of vaccines under clinical trial. First, inactivated vaccine. And the second, it's a virus vector vaccine, like adenovirus, like what we have at the moment in Oxford. And the third is mRNA vaccine. Moderna, in China, we have an mRNA vaccine as well. Moderna's viral uh, vaccine is a mRNA vaccine. And the fourth one is a recombinant protein vaccine, which was developed in my lab. Um, and also, uh, you know, those four, and for the uh, United vaccine, we have four companies producing four, uh, four United vac uh, vaccine. So this is over. So I'm injected. I am vaccinated. Uh, I hope that would encourage people to, you know, once we have the vaccine, at the moment in China CDC, we are discussing 
how we should uh, propose for this uh, immunization program. Who should be the priority group, like healthcare workers, elderly, or you know anyone who might be in close contact, like someone working as a security, you know, security person in office or something like that. Thank you, Steve. But this was phase three trial. This wasn't an approved vaccine. That's right. This is why okay. I'm, I'm saying I was injected with a vaccine, experimental vaccine. I'm right. saying, okay. so this is why I defined myself as a mouse model. Peggy. Okay, thank you. Um, well, I will try to be brief so we can move into the question and answer period because there's obviously so much to discuss and my colleagues have given very um, uh, substantive and uh, excellent presentations before me. Um, I was asked to speak a little bit about, you know, sort of why the U.S. response has not been as, as robust as perhaps we would have hoped um, to reflect a bit on, on that set of issues and also, you know, what's needed going forward with a particular emphasis on you know, opportunities for our two countries, the US and China to work together. Um, clearly, as you've been hearing, huge uh, past history of um, cooperative work together and collaboration, especially in areas of, of scientific research, but so many other important areas. And um, when we're thinking about global pandemics, the challenge is pressing and the opportunities enormous. So just briefly, you know, as we watched the emergence of this novel coronavirus first in China and then as it moved, um, the U.S. certainly was concerned and very interested. We hung on your every word, George, in terms of what you were learning about the virus. But we were slow to really recognize the impact that it might cause within our own uh, borders. Um, and to really begin the mobilization necessary for the, the kind of response that would have been ideal. But from the very beginning, there was a clear understanding that we need to undertake a set of um, coordinated activities. You know, first, really focusing on how to reduce, to prevent people from becoming infected, reduce the chain of transmission, uh, implement certain uh, what uh, George was calling non-pharmaceutical interventions, such as social distancing um, and uh, hygiene and mask wearing, and in, in some areas, you know, more structured lockdowns in order to, to really try to reduce the numbers of people infected to flatten the curve, as we say, um, and be able to better address the second major area of focus, which was to um, identify those infected, manage their care, and reduce the number of deaths, all the while uh, trying to limit the burden on our healthcare system and to, to really be able to address our COVID needs, um, recognizing, as was mentioned earlier by Gordon, the challenge of balancing COVID uh, care with other kinds of, of both routine and acute medical care that of course does occur. As these two areas of focus were um, uh, going forward, there was of course enormous 
pressures to reduce the social and economic dislocations that necessarily were occurring. And I think part of what we have been seeing throughout our response is the tensions between these three major domains of activity. And early on, there were a couple of major epicenters, um, predominantly um, New York, although the first uh, uh, significant outbreak occurred on the other side of the country in Washington state. But we, we were able to see through these measures of, of sheltering in place, implementation of, of non-pharmaceutical interventions, and you know, really uh, a, an effort to break the chain of transmission and reduce numbers that, that we did see a, a peak in cases and a coming down, but then we started to plateau. And sadly, um, as people were very eager to go back to you know, some form of a, a normal life, uh, the disconnect between the recommendations for how to systematically reopen and the desire to reopen uh, has resulted in really uh, now a, a reemergence of, of the virus, new cases, and many new epicenters of disease, predominantly now in the, the South and California. But, but we know that we unfortunately are on a very negative trajectory and today was a grim day um, when we saw uh, you know, more, you know, just about half the states uh, with increasing cases and a number of states hitting record highs in terms of cases and death. Um, so a couple of major things went wrong. Slow to respond. We did not really ever put in place the kind of national plan that was necessary. Breakdowns of communications without consistent messaging and guidance. Um, marked delays in our ability to getting our testing apparatus up and working and we're seeing continuing concerns there even as we are now introducing many new tests and different kinds of tests to help with both diagnostic and, and surveillance needs. You know, and the unfortunate uh, interjection of politics into some of our scientific uh, decision-making and a failure to really uh, completely harness the expertise that exists both within our government, public health and science institutions, but also more broadly in the country. And the area of science and advancing our medical countermeasures has been probably one of the most promising arenas of activity. Um, and you've heard about some of the exciting advances in vaccines and Mark touched briefly on therapeutics. But, but that has really been where we've seen the galvanization of activity and focus across sectors and across disciplines and across borders. And you know, we have, have really um, been able to see both the benefits of collaboration and the importance of existing investments in science to enable more speed and agility as we move forward. Clearly, we are still struggling with, with some of the unknowns in this unfolding pandemic. And I think that, that in China and other parts of the world, uh, those issues still remain critically important for us to be able to both manage our continuing efforts. And we all know that this uh, virus, even when under seeming control, 
can resurge and, and will resurge. So we need to work together to better understand things like the nature of the immune response, the modes of transmission, um, importantly, uh, the spectrum of disease and, and the role of asymptomatic infection and asymptomatic spread, um, how best to implement strategies for non-pharmaceutical interventions, the public health uh, measures, uh, importantly, contact tracing and how to augment traditional approaches with digital tools and other technologies, um, how to better define the spectrum of disease, the medical management of disease, and, um, and strategies for finding the right balance between COVID care and, and other medical care, and importantly, the area of medical countermeasure development. So these are all areas where we have, through our dialogues, been learning from each other where we need to continue this learning as we go and where we need to identify I think some joint research agendas so that we can better inform both our responses today and in the future and as we look forward to a, a post-COVID era perhaps we know we still need to prepare for pandemics um, and how can we uh, more effectively do that together through um, systems of uh, surveillance and rapid detection, open communication, um, data sharing, and collaborative research. Uh, so I will stop there. I spoke much longer than I had intended to because I didn't have notes. I lost my mm -hmm. notes before coming into this session. I apologize, but let's move on to the question and answer period. It, it, it was great, as was everybody's present, fabulous presentations. Uh, George, let me direct the first question to you, and, and it's one we have a lot of Americans on this call and we have American journalists on the call and, and um, they hear, you know, obviously the, the participants in the healthcare dialogue are all pretty sophisticated and we believe that, that collaboration where possible leads to better health outcomes for the American people and the Chinese people. But let me, let me read you a, a quote from uh, a person who I'm sure is not very popular in in China today, Secretary Pompeo, and give you the opportunity, give you a platform to respond to that. He said, I think it was this morning, when you have an incident in your country that could potentially lead to a pandemic, you have an obligation to report that and to allow others to come in and help you be transparent about it. The Chinese Communist Party chose differently they co-opted the World Health Organization to achieve that cover-up. The result today is that we have hundreds of thousands of people who have died and trillions of dollars in global damage as a result of the Chinese, this is Secretary Pompeo's words, not mine, as a result of the Chinese Communist Party's decision. A Pew poll came out today, that's an independent organization, which says, in America, 64% of Americans believe China's done a bad job in handling COVID-19, and 78% believe the Chinese government's initial handling of COVID is to blame for the global spread of the virus. So let me give you a platform to address the many American listeners who are in this, and American journalists, to kind of deal directly with an issue which remains 
so much a part of my life working on U.S.-China relations? Steve, I think this is a very good question. And um, I was asked from time to time by some journalists, including the journalists from the U.S. or, or from other um, you know, Western countries and also journalists from China. So let's put it this way. In my opinion, so because today, so we are discussing something about U.S.-China relations, especially for the public health. I think, Steve, I think Tom is here as well. You, here, you have a lot of Americans like Steve and Tom. You speak Chinese. So that's very important because you speak Chinese, you must understand some Chinese history and some Chinese culture. So for that, I want to say a little bit more, very broad, something about for the culture, for the history, and you know, for the society, when the West meets East. Well, the other way, when the East meet the West, you know, it will be very, very hard. We have a different history. We have a different cultural background. And, you know, we have a different social system. So it's very hard at the moment. This is why, maybe one reason why you organize this factual dialogue. So this is the first point I want to make. A good example is, can you imagine for, you know, a lot of the US citizens and Americans, they, they, you don't understand why the Chinese, in the Chinese culture and in the Southeast Asia culture, people like to, you know, consume the alive, killed, uh, either wet market, uh, uh, you know, a killed um, live poultry. It's very hard for Americans. So if you buy in the, you know, supermarket, why do you really want to buy that? You know, this really some, have some cultural background. We push so hard in China. Again, we still have some area, the illegal, you know, live poultry market there. You know, not many, but in some rural area. Why do you think about the West? Can you imagine in America, it's so hard to persuade everybody to wear a mask. But in China, in the, in the East, Japan, Korea, Singapore, you know, so easy. If you, you know, I remembered, I, I called everybody to, to adopt this, um, adapt this uh, Chinese, uh, this, uh, uh, I called the... Whoops. I guess his uh, internet has some problems. Yeah. Um... Okay, you know, I, I, I just wanted to kind of touch on that to give a platform to respond to what has been the, you know, a, a recurrent criticism from the, the, uh, the Trump administration of, of Chinese behavior there. All right, well, the, the next question, I'll go off that topic and if George can come back on, I'll let him then address that. The dialogue that we've had is very much about where we can find ways to cooperate. So can each of you kind of talk about a particular area where you believe that cooperation could be one and one makes four as opposed to two, you know, whether it's, you know, what can we learn from China and what can the Chinese learn from us? Mark, you wanna start? Uh, sure, I'd be glad to start. There are, I think, a number of areas where we can learn from each other. We already have through the, the dialogue. Um, as George was saying, there are some significant cultural differences and also differences in um, roles of government and individual liberties between each country. Um, uh, so 
I'm not sure how similar our strategies for containment are going to end up being. As I was saying in my earlier remarks, um, given how widespread the virus has become in the United States for a whole host of reasons that, that Peggy and others described, um, I don't think we're close to being able to take the containment strategy that George outlined, which is get to the point where there's uh, generally no virus activity in a community and you can do surveillance with uh, uh, testing uh, whenever there's a, a small outbreak. In, in the US, we're operating for the foreseeable future with the expectation there will be some level uh, of virus activity. We're behind on testing, not because we're doing fewer tests, but because we have more demand for the, the, the tests uh, for through a larger number of cases and uh, more people who have uh, who are close contacts of, of known cases, plus a large number of uh, individuals and businesses and schools that understandably want to do screening. So uh, in the US, our next step, I think, is going to be to ramp up the other types of testing for screening, as Peggy described, uh, as a potential means to augment control. And that means uh, fast tests that are less expensive, maybe not perfect, but because they are fast and because they can be used uh, widely and more easily, they'd be more likely to detect outbreaks starting with asymptomatic individuals sooner. This is also a way to augment the gaps in our contact tracing. Um, only about 30% or so of Americans are uh, voluntarily providing contact uh, tracing information as part of the follow-up that we have been able to do. That's very different than China and many other countries. And while we should keep working to increase that rate, and there are a lot of ways to do it, it's just another reminder that uh, we're going to probably have to rely much more on a surveillance testing strategy. So I think there are some opportunities to learn since the diagnostic tests are part of a global market, just like um, therapeutics are, uh, how to support uh, better, faster, more accurate diagnostic tests uh, with the technologies available and coming online like CRISPR technology, next generation sequencing, other mechanisms for doing rapid tests. Uh, hopefully by later in this pandemic and certainly by the next pandemic, we'll be able to do very rapid testing at the point of care that's very accurate and able to contain the pandemic. We're not there yet, but certainly some opportunities to learn uh, more about improved technology for testing strategies. Uh, we've already talked about some of the opportunities for uh, adopting similar approaches, similar regulatory standards for new therapeutics and for sharing information more transparently about what kinds of therapeutics uh, do work. There's still many unanswered questions about existing therapies. Um, do uh, anticoagulants help? Does convalescent plasma or hyperimmune globulin help and in which patients? So uh, lots of areas where um, even for non-branded pharmaceuticals, uh, we could potentially uh, learn more readily. And uh, Steve, just one more area is uh, neither of our healthcare systems are well suited to delivering care in a pandemic. Both the United States and China have uh, depended heavily on hospital-based and, and institution-based care in facilities at a time when technologies are changing to enable much more digital care, uh, uh, integrated care using uh, electronic information systems, team-based care. Um, we've seen a big shift in that direction in both the U.S. and China, but how do we make that permanent? Uh, how do we change our financing systems and regulatory systems to 
further encourage uh, steps in our care delivery that is that are less expensive, more convenient, and can address uh, some of the health disparities in, in the United States and China. Peggy or Julia or Gordon, add to that? Well, I think that Mark gave a very comprehensive answer. Um, and you framed your initial question in terms of, you know, the sort of how to use these dialogues to advance, you know, the necessary uh, collaboration and, and cooperation and communication. Uh, Mark, I think, went through so many of the elements of what's necessary in COVID, but I think there's a deeper um, point to be made also, which is that I think that together we can work on showing how best to bring knowledge that emerges in, in, in science and medicine and public health to bear on important policy making and decision making um, and how even though our, our systems are different, our systems of government, our cultures, our, our histories, etc., you know, we still have very common problems in front of us and COVID-19 is a very graphic illustration of that, but there are many other challenges um, as well that matter to the, the people of both our countries and frankly, the people of the world. You know, climate change is another good example, the intersection of climate change and health, where there's, there's lots of good knowledge and science about the potential um, threats before us, both what we're already experiencing in, in aspects of it with extreme weather and uh, air pollution and health and, and other things. But we also can see the handwriting on the wall about things that may be coming, just as many of us who've worked on, on biological threats and pandemic threats for a long time always said it was a matter not if but when we'd have a pandemic. So how can we use this kind of um, US-China dialogue, these important and, and deepening um, relationships um, that are based both in uh, commitment to, to science and medicine and public health, but also to cooperation and collaboration. How can we use this to um, address you know, some of some of the other important challenges that we face. Right now, it feels like everything is COVID and it certainly is the biggest challenge of our times. But I think you know, we are learning lessons through these US-China dialogues that are, are so applicable to other areas as well. Julia. Maybe I'd just add um, to the comments that Mark and Peggy made because I, I absolutely agree with what they've said. I think maybe one of the specific areas of focus could be on um, using digital um, technologies and platforms to improve both actual as well as perceived vaccine safety and quality. And you know, whether that is um, you know, tools that enable um, the streamlining of testing, quality testing in, on importation or um, you know, data platforms and, and social media um, strategies to normalize the, the uh, acceptance of vaccination, you know, both, both of um, our countries have had a number of challenges with vaccine acceptance, things like vaccine um, counterfeits, and, and other things that have really shaken people's trust in vaccines and the vaccination systems. And I think these kinds of open dialogues enable us to have an opportunity to share the things that have happened, what we've done, and what we actually can learn from each other to try to improve that. Because in the end, 
trust in the vaccine in the vaccines and trust in the vaccination system is what is going to enable people to um, you know to show up and say I want to be vaccinated whether that's for COVID-19 vaccines or routine immunizations for their children their grandparents or themselves. Gordon anything to add on that? Yeah I'd like to add uh, two points in response to your question. For, for, for how China and U.S. can collaborate um, in dealing with um, uh, health crisis in general. I know, um, I, I think everybody knows that U.S. has been a technological leader, but China is a follower. Therefore, it is um, reasonable and uh, understandable for U.S. to be very much concerned about the uh, technology stealing and uh, intellectual property rights things. Um, but I think um, uh, in, order to, in order to promote a good and um, effective collaboration between the two countries, uh, one is a technological leader, one is a technological follower, I think it's, it, 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 is, it would be good for both countries and, 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 and also the whole world for U.S. as a technological leader to come up with like um, transparent, easy to follow guidelines so that the researchers, investigators can still continue to do research um, through visiting programs, educational programs, and many other um, initiatives. So that because the purpose of doing that is to promote it in the world collaborations on research, right, for the whole world um, human being uh, welfare. So if there's no such a clearly defined and transparent and easy to follow guidelines, I think um, it, it will make both um, the scientists in, in all fields, including medical research field in, in both China and US to be very, very nervous. They don't know what to do, right? So I think it's very, very good uh, for US to, to, to come up with some sort of guidelines um, for, for both scientists to follow. So that's my strong recommendation. Otherwise, I think people will be panic um, and, and both um, have their reasons and fingerprinting. Um, so I think that's not constructive at all to both countries and to the whole world, okay? That's my first comment. The second comment is about um, uh, the point raised by uh, Dr. Susan Schur. Shirk here in the audience, and she asked, um, has China developed a proposal for international cooperation to plan for manufacturers and fair, fair distribution uh, for, for the vaccine? Um, uh, I, I'm not aware of a clear proposal put on table by our government, but I think that's a great recommendation and suggestion for our government to come up with a, a, a clearly defined plan um, for both the public here in China and the rest of the world to know what China uh, can do, what China is intended to do. I think that's very, very good suggestion. Uh, George is here. If you are aware of such a proposal, I think that's great. If not, it's okay. We, we, can, we, we should make such a proposal uh, before the vaccines are, are, are available. I think that will make China to, 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 to be in a good position um, in, a, in a world platform. Does CDC have a, a plan to call, and China's CDC have a plan to call 
an international meeting to discuss manufacture and fair distribution of vaccine? I would just mention that there are some activities that are really trying to create uh, that global discussion and strategy for distribution of vaccines. To date, the, the US and China and, and Russia as well have not been uh, committed to those activities, although um, many, many countries around the world you know, have joined behind an effort that's being spearheaded in part out of WHO, but with uh, philanthropic support and the support of a number of, of countries as well to create a mechanism to help support um, the rapid scale up in manufacture of large quantities of vaccines and also um, advanced procurement or, or um, uh, purchase agreements for vaccines, importantly to make vaccines available and affordable in low-income countries and also you know, middle-income countries um, which don't have the possibility of really um, making uh, the vaccine for themselves and trying to break down some of the issues around what the so-called vaccine nationalism um, and instead, you know, seek a, a, a more equitable distribution and a more public health driven um, strategy for, for vaccines. And, you know, hopefully both the U.S. and China, you know, will either through their own efforts or as part of this, this broader um, ACT Accelerator uh, activity, um, you know, become part of these discussions and ultimately as, as vaccine candidates move from um, uh, experimental to uh, better studied, we will be in a position to, to really both manufacture vaccines that are needed and make sure they get to people in appropriate ways. Just to add on to Peggy's comment, which is excellent, I, I think there is some effort, uh, uh, Peggy, I believe that the National Academy may be involved with National Academy of Medicine around um, kind of expert and uh, diverse views on ethics and, and prioritization. Um, right. And there's some international efforts on that too. But I would just underscore um, the importance of the US and China providing support for global access. And, and uh, the, the US has not done that at a large scale yet. However, there are proposals in our Congress, um, both Republican and Democratic, to put um, billions of dollars potentially into supporting exactly the kind of manufacturing scale up and, and distribution mm -hmm. that Peggy was describing. Uh, also, our, our government has put a lot of resources into as I talked about earlier, this pre-commitment to large-scale manufacturing of now um, at least six different vaccine platforms. Now, the scale for that is enough for the, the U.S. population uh, potentially, but hopefully if multiple vaccines work, um, that will also provide some additional supply. So the U.S. and China working together on the global access issue, um, we have some foundations for that, but uh, I hope we can make more progress soon. What's the, this trust issue with vaccines? Julia, what's the percentage in the United States that actually, you know, what we might call the anti-vaxxers, people who don't want the ordinary, forget the COVID vaccines, the ordinary vaccines. And then Gordon, does that problem exist in China or are people willing to get vaccinated? So maybe I'll, Steve, I'll, I'll start off um, to say that, you know, the, the group that, that some call the, the anti-vaxxers are actually quite a small number um, of the population. 
And, you know, if you look at some of the work that's been done by Heidi Larson um, at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and, and others, including, you know, WHO, you really see that you have, um, you know, a number of people at one end of the spectrum who accept all vaccines for themselves and, and for, their, for their children, for their family members. And then you have this very small number of um, vaccine refusers, if you will, at the other end of the spectrum. And in between, you have a lot of diversity in what people um, think, believe, and do when it comes to vaccination. And you can have a lot of kinds of vaccine hesitancy within that space. Some people are hesitant because of safety reasons. Some people choose not to be vaccinated because um, they don't trust governments or institutions or, or others that are part of the immunization system. Um, and others also believe that, um, that they can get immunity other ways. And there are about 100 different permutations of that. But what we see in the US is, is certainly not uh, unique in that you have some people who accept some vaccines and you have other people that, um, that accept no vaccines. And then in the middle are people that may accept some, but, but not others. And complacency is also a really significant concern here. I think that's one of the things that is really concerning about um, you know, COVID vaccines that you know, right now the target product profile for these vaccines is at 50% you know, basically um, uh, efficacy or higher. And as we've seen with the influenza vaccines, when you have a vaccine that people don't think is necessarily gonna protect them if they take it, then they might say, is it really worth it? Do I need that? Because if I get it, I might still um, you know, get sick with influenza. And so this whole space of hesitancy and complacency is quite complex, but there are things that we can do to try to address that by sharing very clear and accurate information on the steps that are being taken to develop these vaccines. I think the guidance that came out from the US FDA recently on um, what is going to be required for licensure of COVID-19 vaccines, that makes it very clear that you know, robust safety and quality is going to be paramount in these. I think that can help but it needs to be explained to people in a way that they can understand. You know, we have, we have a health literacy expert at Merck who is helping us with things like our packaging and our labeling and, and the words that we use, and even things like clinical trial. You know, in many places, a trial is when you go to court and you stand in front of a jury. And so, you know, just thinking about the words that we're using when we're sharing information about vaccines um, to all of us who know um, the vaccine space, it's just common vernacular, but I think there's a lot that we can do that's very common sense when we communicate on what we're doing in this space to try to increase the confidence and trust that people have, both in the vaccines as well as in the systems that ultimately are going to be delivering those vaccines to people. <clears throat> Gordon, does China have a similar problem? Yes, Steve, I think to some extent, Chinese people also share that kind of um, concern. Mm -hmm. um, in general, I would say um, um, here in China, people um, do face both um, knowledge barrier as well as um, uh, financial barriers uh, too. Because um, some people are concerned with the, uh, the effectiveness of the vaccine based on 
um, the, the available technology for like a flu vaccine. Um, they may not be uh, much aware of how that would uh, really help um, them to protect against the, um, the flu uh, condition. But I think the major issue is um, financial access um, as a barrier because here, um, like flu vaccine is provided publicly to only vulnerable groups, including children and elderly. But for the, for the adult population, you, know, you still have to pay out of pocket. So I think um, as long as um, the society can, you know, be better um, uh, promoting the value of the vaccine and possibly paid uh, fully by, by, by the public finance, I think that will help promote the vaccination rate uh, for the public. I'm not uh, sure um, how people would be concerned with uh, the safety issue of, of the uh, vaccine against the COVID-19. But uh, I would guess people are, would not be so much concerned about the safety issue, but perhaps more on the effectiveness issue and also financial constraint too. You know, in the U.S., just to build on Julia's comments, um, you know, there is a very special set of issues around COVID-19 actually, because uh, people are concerned that they keep hearing that the vaccine processes being so accelerated. Our major vaccine program is actually called Operation Warp Speed, almost implying there's something unnatural about how fast it's going. And then we talk about manufacturing at risk, which is really financial risk because um, the government and companies are actually investing resources in making vaccines in large numbers so they can be rapidly deployed if and when those vaccines make it over the finish line in terms of proving their benefit in terms of, um, of uh, safety and efficacy. But when people hear that the vaccines are being made at risk, that adds to the concerns. So um, Julia mentioned about the importance of thinking about language. You know, this is a critical time as the, the vaccine um, R&D is actually going spectacularly well in, in so many ways and there is real promise. To, to be really trying to communicate to the public, and I suspect it's true in China as well, um, to, to try to enhance trust and confidence um, in these vaccines when and if they are ready, and then making sure that our distribution of them is also as, as smooth and reassuring as possible. And that's why this early planning and prioritization is also important so that people don't get both um, frustrated and lose confidence in the vaccine and the institutions and people delivering it. George, can you hear us now? Question about aerosol transmissions. You were the first person who kind of was screaming at the United States, wear masks, wear masks. You know, I used to quote you in, in speeches saying, well, this is a pretty simple, simple step we could take, not realizing it would get politicized. But now there's a controversy over aerosol transmissions versus droplet transmissions. Was your call early on to wear a mask based upon some understanding of aerosol transmissions? Uh, Steve, I think um, if you can still hear me, that's a very good question. People are talking a lot and uh, play the words. You know, when you are talking about uh, respiratory diseases like uh, this is COVID-19, SARS, flu, you know, a lot of other 
virus, uh, viruses, they cause the respiratory diseases. It's airborne. You know, the word airborne. Airborne could be droplets. You know, people like me, you know, when I speak, you know, the speed very quick. Like, la, 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 la. I, I would produce a lot of droplets. Like you, like Gordon, when Gordon speaks, and you know, his voice very slow. This is Gordon, blah. And he has less droplets. So when you have someone, and this is something with something to do with the PM, PM 2.5 or PM whatever, with the diameter or the size of the particulate. So if a virus like the COVID-19 is transmitted, is airborne transmission, either aerosol. When you're talking about aerosol, aerosol means some fine particulate, you know, floating, floating right. in the air. The droplets means someone like George speaks so quickly, produce a lot of, uh, you know, droplets. And if the distance close enough, you know, you will, you will catch the virus from me because uh, the distance. This is why we need the social distancing and the mask. The mask, social distancing based on the droplets. Now come back to your aerosol. There's no strong evidence. The COVID-19 virus would be carried by the aerosol for a long time. No evidence. It's still under investigation. And uh, from some publications, they claimed maybe you can have some aerosol. But in my opinion, because it's not conclusive, that aerosol still could be a droplet. Say you have a scenario, you have a hundred people together in a room for a while. And uh, say they are COVID-19 carriers, and then they distributed evenly. If they leave, because you know it's because the uh, ventilation is so bad, and then if, if they leave the room, and then you join the room, can can you see that's a aerosol? It's still a droplet because the air was contaminated and the, and the droplet still there. And then you went there, but if leave for you know two or three hours later, and then there so will not be there. So this is the I think people play the word uh, airborne aerosol and droplet. It doesn't matter what you call it. So this is an airborne disease. Wear the mask. So <laughs> this is a conclusion, you know, but we already discussed about the culture. If you tell the, the US citizens and, uh, and the Europeans, wear a mask, it's so hard. If you tell the Chinese, Japanese, Koreans, okay, wear the mask. Uh, the, the public immediately put the mask on. And even in Japan, you know, Japan and Korea, even without COVID-19, during the winter, all the, especially those young ladies, they would wear a mask in the public place, in the underground, you know, uh, buses, they would wear, the, uh, wear this. So, Steve, this is the, people are playing the word, but prevention and control as a priority. Why are the scientists working on uh, for the conclusion about the aerosol? We just wear a mask. So it's, that's the cultural difference. For Chinese, that's not a problem. So that's my comment about that. Uh, we've run out of time. I see virtually everyone who joined this call is still on the call. So let me, uh, even though our time is up, let me just ask what each of you, 
um, and in less than 60 seconds each, the biggest takeaway from the track two healthcare dialogue. So what, what, it, what it is that you'd like to tell the audience that would be your, your biggest takeaway from the, the track two? Anybody wanna go first? Uh, maybe I'll go first, Steve. I, I think that we have a lot more in common than we have differences. And you know, both of our um, countries are struggling with very, very similar issues. Perhaps different things have been done um, to, to address those up to this point, but the same smart thinking is, um, is happening in the US as well as in China. And that if we can continue to work together on some really concrete collaborative activities, the power of what we can do together is so much greater than what we can do apart. Peggy? Well, you know, once again, Julia said it well. I mean, it, it has been striking how much commonality there is, whether it's sort of grappling with healthcare reform and how to cost effectively deliver the best care uh, to people in, in both urban and rural settings or trying to address uh, important issues of how do you build the right public health infrastructure um, to, to serve population-based health programs or how do we think about um, uh, bringing regulatory approaches for medical products um, closer together and, and harmonize and align approaches. So many commonalities, so many opportunities to really strengthen both our understanding of the issues and our strategies to address them if we talk to each other, learn from each other, um, and you know, develop uh, you know, really important working relationships. I think especially in these times you know, when our countries at the highest levels are um, uh, engaged in, um, you know, much more tense and, and conflictual uh, relationships, the ability to maintain open um, and collegial dialogue, um, keep information flowing and commitment uh, to each other and trust and confidence is essential as well. George? Uh 22nd, I would say, promote our means US-China dialogue by using your own skills. Your own skills means your occupation, your work, your knowledge by speaking out. Speaking out and by doing something good. Try to expressing your, your own understanding how we can keep a strong relationship between China and the US. The public, the world need these relations. Thank you. Uh, now to the two kind of co-founders of the dialogue, Gordon. Okay, yes. Uh, I'm extremely concerned with the current political environment in both countries that prevent or damaging the collaborations um, between the two countries and, um, and the collaborations with the rest of the world. Um, um, you, you know, um, I think um, whether uh, or, or not we, we, we like government 
or not, we are run by government. Therefore, I would uh, highly recommend that both, country, both governments can meet, can talk, uh, can discuss um, together to come up with the, uh, as I said, uh, 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 guidelines for collaborating that are transparent, easy to follow, and easy to implement so that we can move ahead with better collaborative opportunities. Otherwise, I really don't see much bright opportunities ahead. We need guidelines to lead our further steps. Thank you. Mark. And Steve, I, I do think building on the last comments that this dialogue around issues of the health of our populations can be a, a, an important focal point for further collaboration between countries. I mean, look, um, to, to Gordon's point, uh, I think our uh, national relations are going to get worse before they get better. There are some very important policy differences between the U.S. and China. And uh, those are contributing to lack of trust and other issues. There are probably uh, some American viewers of this event who uh, suspect that uh, George's uh, video going out when he was answering your, your challenging question about the start of the pandemic was some kind of deliberate plot. I don't think that was the case, but uh, that's the world we live in. So uh, the good news is, as George said, there are some very much shared interests between the U.S. and China, and they relate to the, the health of our populations and really the health of people around the world. Uh, what we do uh, in the United States and China has such a big impact. We've talked about it in this pandemic and uh, I hope uh, we'll be able to keep identifying those areas of common ground while I think some of the other dialogues, Steve, have been particularly challenged recently, this one is going strong because as you've heard tonight, there are so many areas where we need to work together around transparency on public health risks in this pandemic and uh, hopefully even better uh, early and, and throughout for the, the next one. Uh, technologies that, that benefit all of us that are, are not a, a competition such as earlier and more accurate uh, uh, diagnostics in the event of a pandemic and, and better ways to support uh, people in, in less developed countries and in, in responding and, and containing global outbreaks. So uh, I have hopes for the future even though we do have some challenging times ahead and I particularly want to thank our, our Chinese friends. It's been a, a real pleasure to get to know people like George and Gordon and the other other participants, Minister Liu, other participants in the, in the dialogue uh, who genuinely share this commitment to uh, finding common ground and improving the health of people in both of our countries. You know, I want to, I see that nobody is signing off. So clearly the audience wants us to continue, but we're, we're way past our allotted time. And I think our American participants probably have something to do, which relates to going to bed. Um, our Chinese participants have to get on with their day, but Number one, I thank you for giving so generously of your time today. Number two, I thank you for your participation in this incredibly important track two dialogue that is really making a difference in, in the relationship between the United States and China and in the, 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 the health of the, the American people and the Chinese population. And third, I wanna thank the five panelists because they all are have been or are great public servants and they have made a contribution 
to each of their societies or making contributions to each of their societies and global health in a really important way. So thank you so much. And to the audience, I thank you for joining us. I'm sorry I didn't get to all of the questions, but um, you have my email and you know where I live. So thank you all. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Bye. Good morning. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good morning, everybody. Bye bye. See you soon. See you soon. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.